Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening. Thanks for tuning in. This is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This is episode five. Today we're going to be talking about the world is not enough. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to get into this topic. This one's going to have everything, guys. We're going to have Russians, Iranians, we're going to have oil fights, we're going to have militants, bombings, corporations, subterfuged. We're going to talk about even the Ottoman Empire. And we're going to have a special guest today who you're going to love listening to way more than me. So I'm very excited for this one. And this topic is going to go into why I love James Bond so much. You know, the, the, the action, the suits, everything, that's, that's all great. But really it's about the stories and what this story is about, how the world really works. You know, it's looking behind the veil of the elites. And that's the world that James Bond lives in. You know, this, this, this is the reasons why 24 movies later we're still watching. It's why a grown-ass man is sitting in his basement talking to a microphone by himself, surrounded by posters, books, and little stupid-ass Funko Pops. Like, this is, this is, these are the stories that make it, and this is why I love it so much. So before we actually get into the meat of the episode, I want to go over some things that have happened since my last podcast. Start with Instagram. Um, every time, every day before I uh, record, I put up like a little hint picture. And the first person that guesses both the movie and the topic that the hint picture comes from gets the shout out. And this week's winner is going to be Ladies Who Bond. What a great person this girl is. She is, since I started this, she instantly started sharing my pages, liking it, helping me out. And uh, I didn't even know her before, but she was so great and so awesome. So if you're not following her, she's a great follow. She's funny. Great Bond personality. Follow her. If you're not following, it's Ladies Who Bond. And a special also uh, congrats to Bond on this day again. I posted the picture up and he like DM'd me and three seconds later. He's like, yeah, it's world's not enough. It's the oil pipeline, bro. I'm like, damn, we're just on the same wavelength. So if you're not following him, he's last week's winner. He just gets me too. Ladies Who Bond and Bond on this day. Follow those two pages. Congratulations to Ray from the Bond Armory for hitting 1,000 YouTube subscribers. Congratulations to Caleb from commando.bond.007 for hitting 1,000 Instagram followers. And congratulations to uh, Joseph Darlington from Being James Bond did his 200th podcast. Uh, Thank you also to Daniel Gomez at dgomez007. He reached out. He uh, gave me a call, gave me some advice, gave me some great ideas uh, for what's next I should do with the podcast. So I really appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for reaching out to me. So I'm really excited today to have Thomas Felix Creighton on today. God, he's so good on this. He's so good. The way he speaks and the way he talks and his history knowledge, what a treat it's going to be for you guys to listen to him today. So he actually reached out to me. On, he DM'd me. He's like, hey, I can't find your podcast. And I'm like, whoa, man, I heard you on um, from Taylor's with Love. And, and by the way, Pete Brooker and Matt Spears, you guys are such dicks. Like, you're just going to be like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do an entire podcast about towels and I'm going to make it way better than anything you're going to put out. And you guys just nail it. And I could, I'm literally like Googling freaking robes after. I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. And Matt Spazer, how do you know these things about fucking robes? Like, man, you guys are so good at this shit. Oh, man, goals, man. You guys are great. And um, so I'd heard him on his podcast. And then Thomas was on that podcast too, talking about towels. I'm like, these guys are so awesome at this shit. Like, here I am just doing hours of research and just flubbing around this microphone and you guys just effortlessly talk about towels for 30 minutes and kill it. So I, I was very excited to, to talk to Thomas. and I was very happy he reached out and DM me. He's like, you know, if you ever want to talk, and I knew he had lived in Istanbul, I'm like, 
well, actually, I'm I'm actually kind of talking about Istanbul today. He's like, I, dude, give me a call. He doesn't say, dude. This is my American colloquialisms here. Like, fucking bro over here. And I, dude, dude, give me a call, man. I'll, we'll hit you up. We'll do it up. And <laughs> he's more like, actually, if you would, if you'd like to give me a call, it'd, it'd be, it'd be, I'd be delighted. That's my, I can't even do it nearly as well. But I was really excited, so I actually uh, gave him a call yesterday. And uh, I'm such a noob. I'm such a noob at this. Like, Thomas Felix Creighton is giving me a call, and he wants to talk about it. And I've got my AirPods, not even my microphone. And I'm like, yeah, I thought we were just going to talk. He's like, hey, I'd, I'd be willing to, to record it. And I'd be like, yeah, I really should have thought of this beforehand. <laughs> so he records it. We we talk for a while before, and then he's like, yeah, I'll, let's go ahead and record I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. So then we get to, he records it and sends it to me on Skype. And so you guys are going to get to hear that part today. And I just, I cannot even believe what a noob I am at this, but I will get better. But thank you so much, Thomas, for coming on. I cannot thank you enough. And God, you, you guys are so good. Um, I can't wait to, uh, to see what more comes from Thomas. And I'm really happy he reached out today. So we're going to get into it. We're going to get into the world is not enough here in a minute. It's one of those movies where people, some people hate it, some people love it. I mean, I follow this one guy on Instagram. It's Lorenzo.Granger001. And it's his favorite movie. And Denise Richards is his favorite Bond girl. And he's a really avid Bond fan. And I'm like, you know, and then I actually really like this movie. But, you know, and then some people lambast it and put it in their bottom 20. So you never know. It's so, so weird with Bond movies. Some people think that it's the best. Some people think it's the worst. You never, you never know. So everybody's top five is different. Like I don't understand why people dick ride on Her Majesty's Secret Service so much. Like it's a good movie, but it, it put, to put it as everybody's favorite, I'm like I'm just not seeing it. But yeah, that's this is part of being a Bond fan, right? That's what makes it interesting. That's why we can have all these podcasts about it because everybody's got something new to say, and there's always something to debate. So without further ado, let's get into it. The world is not enough. I think that the world is not enough is going to be Brosnan's Octopussy. Like when Octopussy came out, you know, it's been lambasted and it's viewed as one of the worst ones for, and for Roger Moore. But as time goes on, people have softened on it and they've forgiven some of the cheese in there. Like the suit and the Tarzan yell and uh, him in a clown suit. Yeah, there's some stuff to be lambasted, but it's actually a good movie. The story's good, and I actually like Octopussy, and I think that time's been kind to it, and I think the same is going to be of um, The World is Not Enough. I think that it's going to be regarded more as a classic than as a dud as time goes on. I, I would give, I would say that Brosnan's performances Bond in this one is as good a Bond as anybody's done. The way that he does it, the way he delivers it, the way he acts, I, I put that up with any of the Connery versions of it. I wouldn't put this movie in the, in the category of the Connerys, but I would put Brosnan's performance as Bond. I put that up with any of them. No problems with that. The, the pre-title sequence, I think, is awesome. The boat scene is really good. Um, and it's long, but it's very good. Um, and besides Brosnan, oh, Electra King. Oh, my God. She's one of my favorite. She's my favorite Bond villain. 
Um, cause she is, she is everything a Bond girl should be. She's seductive. She's classy. She's intelligent. She's elegant, but she's spoiled and manipulative at the same time. You know, whatever role she plays at the time, I'm completely believing her. And she's the most manipulative Bond of all of them. She's ahead of Bond. She plays with him. She has him curled around her finger the entire time. If you heard my last podcast with Goldeneye, where I talked about how the Craig era took the idea of an MI6 agent actually being a double agent, and they took that idea and they brought it into the woods and they bludgeoned that horse to death. Well, they 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 took a stop at uh, the its cousin Judy Dench being personal, and they gave that horse the same treatment. But for its time, it was the first time they did it for this movie, so it actually was it actually was a good story for this time. But the movie does have its flaws. I will give you that. I, I think that. With the exception of Goldeneye, the other three Brosnan movies are plagued by this idea of wanting to placate to 13-year-olds chugging monsters and playing PlayStation in their basement. And they forget that it's really about the story. And this is Bond's more of a grown man thing. than uh, Once they start doing that, they, they become cheesy and they don't hold up to the taste of time. To me, where the movie kind of loses me is when, they, when Brosnan starts doing that Russian accent. He was, he's in the trunk of a car and he just shoots this poor security guard in the head like all right he's just he's just a security guard bro like damn and then he goes in he takes the adidas duffel bag and talks in the russian accent I'm like oh all right all right fine fine i'll i'll suspend belief for a little bit longer and then he lands and then then denise shows up and then i'm like oh my god oh my god i gotta deal with denise richards as a nuclear scientist too and wow some of the some of the ways that Denise Richards delivers those lines, you're like, Jesus, just just go back to getting in the pool with Nev Campbell. That's 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 your forte. And if you haven't seen Wild Things, just just Google that scene. That was the first thing that ever got added to my bucket list as an adolescent teenager. I hadn't had one. I hadn't even started a bucket list. And then I saw that movie. I'm like, well, whatever's happening here, that's I, I want in on that. That looks fun. So that was the first thing that ever got put into my bucket list. So thank you, Denise. Uh, the movie then keeps going over the top with the submarine. And then the ending, I think, is... I find the same thing with Spy Who Loved Me. I find myself tapering off and just getting bored as they're in the submarine. But, again, Denise Richards, t-shirt, water flowing everywhere. Boobs. I promised Chris Morales of That One Bond Guy that every podcast I had from now on, I would mention boobs. So, there's your mention of boobs. I said it four times, boobs. Boobs. And Sophie Marceau steals every scene she's in. She's so captivating. And that ice cube scene, I mean, that is the best love scene of all the Bond films. I'm not going to take any arguments, no debate. It's hands down. Hands down the best one. I mean, oh, oh, be still my beating heart. Those French girls, yo. Oh. The biggest flaw of this film for me by far is Renard. I, another snooze fest villain. The idea is really cool that he feels no pain. He keeps getting stronger. But he's played by this guy who looks like he gets Frappuccino mustaches when it, Starbucks. It just it doesn't work for me. He needs to be like an intimidating guy. He needs to be big, yoked up, cock diesel motherfucker. Not this dude. This dude is a twig. He's, I'm not scared of this dude. Denise Richards could have taken him. He, he could have manhandled him more. Denise Richards could have handled him more than she handled Nev Campbell in that pool. Like, ah, get out of here with this. Why am I supposed to be scared of this dude? 
The ending needed to be more like Goldfinger, where Oddjob and Bond are fighting, and Oddjob's clearly way more powerful and dominant than Bond is. Instead, this looks like two guys fighting in Starbucks over how many pumps of caramel got put in their latte. Like, no, I'm not buying this. This, What is this? This is ridiculous. (laughs) No. So I think they really missed a really great opportunity by casting that guy as Renard. I'm just not buying it. But overall, I really do actually enjoy this movie, and I've grown to like it more and more the more views I have of it. If I'm just looking for a fun, put it on in the background, chill with it, it's going to be The World Is Not Enough. That's what, probably like my favorite like guilty pleasure one. That one and uh, Octopussy. I think those are the two, my guilty, my two guilty pleasure movies of the Bond, uh, of the Bond films. And at the heart of the world is not enough when you dress down the fluff, the nuclear bombs, the submarines, the giant saw blades, the flying snowmobiles, the avalanches, the lapel pin bombs, and the medieval torture devices is really a conflict over an oil pipeline. And this oil pipeline that they talk about in the movie was a real pipeline that was really built and operational today. Now this pipeline goes from Azerbaijan in the Caspian Sea across Turkey and into the Mediterranean. Um, from Turkey, the raw crude oil is actually placed on ships and it's sent to European nations. And at the time, Europe really needed this because before this pipeline, their sources of, of oil were Russia and Iran. And those are not two countries you want to really uh, depend on too much. Now, the Caspian Sea, where the Baku, Azerbaijan is located, uh, has a huge oil basin. And they wanted to get they wanted to tap into these natural resources of oil that is loaded within the, within the Caspian Sea. So they started building a plan and started negotiating um, as early as the early 90s and it wasn't built until the mid 2000s. Now the main proprietor of this pipeline is BP or uh, British Petroleum. It's the fourth largest oil company in the world and is valued at 300 billion dollars. Now the pipeline runs from Baku, Azerbaijan through Georgia, and it ends at Chihan, Turkey. Now, that distance is 1,768 kilometers, or 1,098 miles. It's exactly the distance between Baltimore to Miami. And I actually just was like, hey, I, well, that looks about the same distance as Baltimore to Miami, and I Google mapped it, and it was one mile off. And you know when you get the perfect pump at uh, the gas station? That's what it felt like picking the exact mileage my first Google try. So I was really proud of myself for that on a side note. It crosses several mountain ranges at altitudes up to 2,830 meters or 9,300 feet. It traverses 3,000 roads, railways, and utility lines in 1,500 water courses that are up to 500 meters wide. This is a massive, massive engineering marvel. The pipeline is expected to have a lifeline of 40 years and it transports 1 million barrels a day. And it takes 10 million barrels of oil to fill the pipeline. Now, when I looked at the price of oil as of uh, March 11th, it's a barrel of oil is worth $36, which means that $36 million flows out of that pipeline a day. $13,140,000,000 a year and $525 billion 600 million over its lifetime is going to flow out of that pipeline. Now the pipeline cost itself 3.9 billion to build. Now that is a nice return on investment. So I'm going to give you some percentage breakdowns and who actually owns the pipeline. And it's going to be a little dry, but it's important to understand 
how many hands are in this pot. So the main proprietor, like we said, is BP, which is based out of the United Kingdom. And that's they own 30%. Now, the state oil company of Azerbaijan owns 25%. Chevron, which is a U.S. company, owns 8%. Uh, Statoil, which is a Norway company, owns 8%. TPAO out of Turkey owns 6.53%. Eni from Italy owns 5%. And Total from France owns 5%. Now, Itochi and Inpex, both from Japan, own 33 and 2.5% respectively. And ExxonMobil, 2.5%. And ONGC of India, 2.36%. So that's a lot of dry data, but it's important to understand how many hands are in the pot, who owns it, and even more importantly, who doesn't? Who is excluded from touching this pipeline? Now, the first part of this is the geography of where the actual pipeline goes through. So the quickest way between Baku, Azerbaijan, and Chihan, Turkey is obviously a straight line, but it goes, would be through Armenia. But they don't, it doesn't. It goes way out of its way to go up to, Tur to Georgia to then go down to Turkey. And why is it? That would make no sense. Why add the extra cost? Why all the extra pumps? All the extra money that it would cost to get in there? Well, that's because Armenia and Azerbaijan have been, have been enemies for years. They have been decades, even hundreds of years. Even going back to the Ottoman Empire, they've been rivals. So Azerbaijan is the starting point. They're the ones that actually have the crude oil. But for, the for them to let BP and everybody to come in here to make the pipeline... It had to be agreed that Armenia wouldn't touch any of this, that they would not benefit at all from Azerbaijan's oil. So to please Azerbaijan to get access to this oil, they actually had to go way out of the way to Georgia to then go down to Turkey to completely circumvent Armenia just to please Azerbaijan. So not only the countries that are chosen, but where in these countries does this pipeline go? Because the physical presence of a pipeline is not an enjoyable. No one who lives near a pipeline wants it there. It's an eyesore, it's cumbersome, and it has a lot of environmental issues that come with it. So where does it go? It goes to the people with the least influence. And in Turkey, that's going to be the Kurds. Um, to understand who the Kurds are, they're Muslims, but they have their own traditions. They live in these countries, um, but they have their own traditions, linguistics. They speak um, their own dialects of the Kurdish language. And um, they're the largest ethnic group without their own nation. They are 30 million people without a nation of their own. And after World War I, they were promised by the Western powers a home of their own, but they were not given that. Brands, Britain and France backed out of the deal, and instead they divided the Kurds into four countries, um, mainly Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And that's led to a lot of conflict over the last century. I mean, it dates back to the Ottoman Empire, but over the last century, specifically in my lifetime, I know I've heard that conflict constantly in the news. It's it's because a multitude of things, complex things, but the Kurds want a nation, a nation of their own too, and they don't want to identify and they don't want to lose their own traditions. So I'm lucky enough and privileged enough to have Thomas Felix Creighton from Fleving Never Dies on today, who is going to speak, who actually lived in Turkey and knows firsthand knowledge and speaks very eloquently and at such an esoteric level about this topic. So I'm very excited. We're going to kick it off. I'm going to let you listen to the interview that I had with him right now. Yeah, so I just want to get your insight. Um, you were in Turkey, what you saw, and what kind of relates to the pipeline and, and different the dichotomy and the paradigm you've seen with between the Kurds and the Turks. And uh, if I could just come with your insight on that. Okay, well, I lived in Turkey for seven years, and when I say Turkey, I, I actually mean the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, 
Uh, Cyprus is a small island just south of uh, Turkey, which has uh, a long-standing conflict between the Turks and the Greeks. Uh, so the south is administered by the Greeks. There's a border which is the has the longest-standing UN mission in the world, and then above that we have the Turks, and that's where I lived for seven years. Um, so really learning as much as I could everything about the region and any aspect of Turkish culture as I became bilingual and ended up as a translator for Turkish into English. Very cool. And in that time, like, what did you see? Uh, what kind of, like you said, it's just a complicated, complex area with things that go all the way back to the Ottoman Empire. Can you just kind of speak on what you've seen and what you know from the delineation after the Ottoman Empire into World War II and to conflicts between USSR and Ottomans and all the way up to, to now? What, you, what have you seen the uh, area progress in that area? Okay, well, in terms of what you see, anywhere in Turkey you see pictures of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who's the first president of Turkey from 1923 on into the late 30s. And he was a revolutionary figure who completely changed Turkey from being the Ottoman Empire, that was kind of the all-conquering uh, empire, into really a very, very interesting form of nationalism, which was based on the retraction of borders. So at that time you've got the great men, the great dictators like, well, Hitler, Stalin, later on Mao, who were really built on expansion. Uh, Ataturk really believed in the retraction of borders and focusing on a stronger Turkey that we have today. Um, so we see his picture everywhere. You walk into a bank, into a school, into a supermarket, literally anywhere, and you'll see his picture there. So he is the, the founder of modern Turkey, and he also believed in democracy. So he was a dictator, but who slowly gave away his power bit by bit, almost training up the nation to be a modern democracy. So Turkey really has a democratic history going back to the 1920s, which in the Middle East, if you place it there, or in Eastern Europe, if you place Turkey there, is, is quite unparalleled. And it became Western-aligned from that point. So Turkey is a founder member of NATO. It took part in the UN war in uh, Korea and has really been a stalwart of the Western world uh, against communism throughout the late 20th century. And do you find that this has actually been so aligning with um, Western civilization, Western culture, but also having to balance being in that area mm. with such a such a different different areas, different cultures, and different ethnicities, and trying to balance all that. What have you seen as far as the challenges that Turkey faced? having to balance the Kurds, the Turkmenis, mm -hmm. uh, Cyprus, Iran, Syria, all these areas that are all in conflict. Well, Ataturk's word, which you can see printed everywhere, is peace at home, peace in the world. So the idea is always that if you can solve all of these problems just within Turkey, you won't have a problem uh, with anybody else. Um, so really the modern idea of Turkishness is that it should encompass everybody who lives within these borders, and that does include the Kurds. Um, so though it's we talk about the Turkish-Kurdish conflict. Um, at the height of the conflict in the 1980s, the head of the Turkish army was himself a Kurd. Um, so there are those who are, say, ethnically Kurdish, who identify as Turks. Um, there are those, of course, who take the linguistic side of it and might speak Kurdish at home, maybe Turkish outside the home. Um, so the, the boundary between it is actually very, very interesting in terms of what people believe they really, really are. So would you say it's more that... Um the Kurds not willing to indoctrinate themselves into Turkish culture, or is it that there's just Turks are just not as much bending, or is it just that Kurds are just very set on being their own nationalism, 
and the not want to be fully indoctrinated into the Turkish society or the culture. At the risk of giving a pithy answer, I think there's certain elements on both. Um, so I think, you know, the idea of Turkishness is contested, um, and it was defined in the early constitutions as simply somebody who speaks Turkish and is a Muslim. Um, so by that definition, although I'm British through and through, I could be considered half Turkish <laughs> by that definition through speaking the language. Um, that de definition has evolved over time. Um, but again, there's just so many disparate groups within Turkey. Um, the Kurds have become kind of the most prominent in kind of in the last 20, 30 years, um, and it's changed enormously. So when I first went, there was still an element of Kurdish culture not really being broadcast. Um, it had been banned. It was no longer banned, I think, by the time I went. But I was actually very, very surprised a few years ago uh, to switch on a Turkish channel when I was in another country. I was delighted to find a Turkish channel. And then I suddenly realized they're actually broadcasting in Kurdish, uh, because the state broadcaster now broadcasts a special channel in the Kurdish language. So again, that kind of shows you how much it's changed over the last 30 years. Very interesting. And where do you see it going from here? Of course, I'd hope everything would become more and more peaceful. Turkey, of course, is going through a very um, fractured time, even within the Turks. I mean, there's kind of... Turkey does bridge the divide between Europe and Asia. Uh, we have the current president who might be tend towards the Asian side culturally, um, there was a failed coup against him by the military, uh, who would tend towards being very, very Western. Um, again, Turkey has a very unusual history of military coups to support democracy. It was almost unique in the world um, that any time they felt that presidents had been too dictatorial, perhaps perverting or changing the constitution, um, they've often stepped in to protect the constitution. Um, that would be their argument. Very cool. And um, as far as from the difference between like CN and Northern, or I'm sorry, Chien, mm -hmm. you say it much better than I do. <laughs> How do you say it? Jehan. Yeah, Chien. Chien. The difference between that, do you find that Western Turkey and Eastern Turkey is different, or is it kind of just all mixed in, or they all view themselves as one big umbrella of Turkey? I think, first of all, there are very, very strong local identities anywhere you go in Turkey. Um, so ethnically, people look totally different. There are strong linguistic differences. Um, and again, there are cultural differences. I think one of the best ways to get an insight into that is that on April the 23rd every year, we used to have this World Children's Day. It was actually really a Turkish Children's Day, where people would dress up in their traditional costumes and do their traditional dances. And so across the kind of 20 to 30 different ethnic groups you get in Turkey, you had a huge range of different people. So you've got the Black Sea, really facing Russia, and quite influenced by that. Of course, in the east, you border Iran, Armenia, Syria, Iraq, and you get some very, very different, quite strong Middle Eastern cultures there. I lived on the Mediterranean, so for many of our dances and costumes, you know, it's almost Italianate. And then, of course, you have the border with Greece, uh, it can seem very, very European. And then a great swathe of Anatolia in the middle, um, where you do get kind of uh, the Turkish majority in many ways, um, including some very, very traditional Islamic cultures, because Turkey is also the home of Sufism, um, which you can find, again, across the Middle East, a very different take on Islam from the usual Sunni and Shia. So, yeah, there's a huge range, and then somehow Turkishness is, becomes the umbrella term for them all. Very interesting. And uh, last question. Mm -hmm. 
if Sophie Marceau comes up to you with a bucket of ice and says she wants to run a pipeline right through the middle of your house, <laughs> she's willing to use those ice cubes. <laughs> Are you letting her? Is she getting that pipeline? <laughs> I don't know if it'd be my house. If it was somebody else's house, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure if Sophie Marceau came with those ice cubes and said, I have to run a pipeline to right through the middle of your house, I'm, I'm moving my couch. <laughs> It's a good plan. I want to thank you so much, time. Thank you so much, Thomas, for your time. Thank you. uh, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, what an interesting guy. What an interesting talk. What an interesting life, man. I really appreciate your time. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, back to uh, back to Walrus talk. I can't believe I did that on my AirPods. I mean, I yeah, what a noob. Uh, Thank you again, Thomas. I mean, so eloquently spoken, so well-versed. What a treat to have him on, and he really added to this podcast. So thank you so much for coming on, Thomas. If you're not following him, follow him on Fleming Never Dies. Great stuff. Adventurous page. It's so good. So again, thank you so much, Thomas. So what about Georgia? Well, in Georgia, it was applied that the Russia backed the Kurdish forces to attack the Georgian area of the pipeline. The reason for this is that the pipeline with Russia loses their influence over Azerbaijan and Georgia. It makes Azerbaijan and Georgia self-sufficient having this pipeline and having that oil money go into their nation. So the way that Russia can combat this is to go where the pipeline is the weakest, and that's in Georgia. Now, Russia has used, um, Russia armed the Kurds to do the dirty work. So the Kurds go into Georgia, and Georgia is far less capable of protecting their pipeline than the Turks are. And so Russia armed the Kurds in Turkey to go up to Georgia to then attack the pipeline in Georgia. The reason for this is to show the companies and the investors that Georgia can't protect the pipeline. So that next time when they want to go from Azerbaijan or from the Caspian Sea, instead they use the Russian route rather than the Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Turkey route. That way Russia can keep their influence in Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Azerbaijan and Georgia then lose their ability to self-sustain themselves. So, in inst- for instance, in Syria, the U.S. backs the Kurds in Syria against the Syrian forces. Russia backs the Syrian forces to fight against the Kurds for all the reasons that we said before. But when the Kurds start talk- start going against Turkey, then the U.S. no longer backs the Kurds in Syria because the Turkey is way more of an ally than the Kurds would be. And it's easier to fight the Kurds because they want Syria gone, but they're not going to back the Kurds against Turkey because they like Turkey. So the the whole, the weeds that go on with this story are just, just never ending. So let's just do a quick review and see how into the weeds this pipeline has gotten. So the Caspian Sea holds a lot of oil. A really large British company wants that oil. Russia does not want the oil pipeline to be built because they want to keep their influence in Europe and in the region. Azerbaijan hates Armenia, so the pipeline can't go through Armenia because Azerbaijan can't have Armenia benefiting. Now, Georgia's cool with whatever. They're just, they're just happy to be along for the ride. Turkey's down for the pipeline, but only if it goes to Kurdish territory. And the Kurd doesn't want it, and the Kurds want their own nation in addition to not wanting this freaking pipeline. The Kurds are fighting battles on every front, the protests, but to no avail because they really don't have any influence. So they need foreign influence. The only way that the Kurds are going to get foreign influence is to show that their be- their backing them would be beneficial. So, and Kurds can get the backing in Syria because the U.S. wants the Syrian government gone. But they're not going to get 
backing in Turkey because the U.S. backs Turkey. But Russia wants the Syrian government to stay. So the Russians arm the Syrian forces against the Kurds in Syria. But the, the Russians also want the pipeline attacked in Georgia. So they arm the Kurds in Turkey. So it is just, it is just so complicated, that area. So how do you, how do you fix this? I mean, this is, this is $500 billion at stake. This is power. This is influence. This is nation-changing, world-changing stuff that we're talking about. And it comes down to centuries-old rivals that are getting in the way of progress. And it's such a... And this is the world that James Bond lives in. I remember in college, I had this... I took this college class, and it was this, like, feminist class I had to take for sociology. And the teacher was this super liberal uh, teacher, and she's like... These are the five pillars to world peace. And I argued with her. And I was like, what? This is the dumbest thing I've ever read in my life. And she's like, no, no, no. I'm telling you, we've studied it. And these are the five pillars to world peace. And I said, this is, and I argued with her the entire class. I said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever read. And then I did this whole paper and I researched and I made a whole counter argument. And she gave me a C on it. And it was one of the hardest work, hardest papers I've ever worked on in my life just to prove a point. And it was at that point, I realized how the world works. So my next paper, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff like, oh my God, oh, the world is evil. And oh my God, I'm so with you. We need these five pillars of world peace. And she gave me an A for the class. So then that was my epiphany about how this world works at a young age. And that's what it is. It's about placating to people. You know, your argument can be as well thought out and well versed and you can study and you can be like, this is, I'm, this is, I've researched, this is what I have. And it doesn't matter. Because people's prejudices and people's thoughts and people's ideas don't change. And you're not going to be, there are very few open-minded people in here. There are many, very many people who are willing to listen to both sides. That's why conservatives listen to Fox News all day and liberals listen to CNN all day. You, know, you want to hear the argument that you believe and you can't listen to other people. Like when I, when I hear somebody talk about how great on Her Majesty's Secret Service is, I'm like, oh my God. No, it's not. It's not that great. It's not that great, people. It's maybe like the 13th best. Lazenby's the worst Bond. I, I'm not seeing it. Telly Savalas is terrible, guys. The grenade scene, the bomb scene. He, what, what is he doing? Dropping Easter eggs? I guess I kind of went on with a little tangent there, but it goes, you know, in Quantum of Solace when, he, when he's talking about the, the water price and uh, Dominic Green is like, if you don't sign it, we'll just find somebody else who will. And... You know, it, it, that's this was so interesting about James Bond. It's, this is the world he lives in. He's not, he's not Vin Diesel driving a motorcycle through a cocaine field and drop kicking somebody out of a tower. You know, he's not Arnold. You need to get to the chopper. No, he's he is in the world that very few get to see behind. It's he lifts the veil of which only the elite of the elite get to see what goes on in this world, and that's what makes him such an indelible. Um, character why he's why he's so interesting to me it's my favorite part of bond is that he gets to live in the world he's it's, it's just a simple policeman but he gets to live in the world of the elite of the elites but the difference between real life and bond is that when the when the bond movie's over he gets to he's laying there with a beautiful woman getting to say brilliant lines like this Christmas only comes once a year. 
and the good guy wins and we know who the good guy is we know who the bad guy is and the credits roll and everybody feels good about themselves but in reality the line between who's good and who's right is often blurred but at least we can come more than once a year all right guys that's gonna do it for this podcast Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you again to Thomas Felix Creighton from Fleming Never Dies for coming on. Thank you guys, everyone who supported, everyone who's listening, everyone who's tuning in. Follow me on Instagram at Quantum of Solace. And again, watch out for the Rona. Stay safe. Guys, enjoy your night. Thanks so much for listening in, guys. <laughs>